Welcome at How to Buy Design, the monthly meetup organized by Blue City Lab, where we search for answers on how to buy design with our international community of pioneers. We dive into our oceans, explore the organisms in the soil, look at human and non-human organisms, from the Netherlands to Central Asia. Let's get started. Welcome to How to Buy Design. My name is Emma van der Leest and I'm a buy designer working on the intersection of design, biology and technology. And as a founder of Blue City Lab, I'm very proud to host this series. And in these monthly meetups, we meet experts from all over the world uh, to talk about a specific theme to facilitate interactions between pioneers who are already working and those who want to get started with buy design and biofabrication. And at Blue City Lab, we believe that true circularity starts with regenerative design, a design that leads to a, a vibrant, biodiverse city in which ecological, social and economic values work together in a positive way. Tonight we kick off with the theme Coral Restoration as Biodesign Challenge. Coral reefs provide coastal protection for communities, habitats for fish and millions of dollars in recreation and tourism amongst a lot of other benefits. But corals are also severely threatened by rapidly worsening environmental conditions. And corals are extremely valuable to the economy, but also for, of course, biodiversity. Hundreds of millions of people depend on coral reefs for food, livelihoods, cultural practices, and a variety of economic benefits. And they also provide habitats for fish and other marine species, and protection for valuable coastal infrastructure. In the Netherlands, we also noticed that our marine biodiversity is declining due to design decisions of the past. For example, the Afsluit Dyke, a dike that is 33 kilometers long that protects us from the water. A fish migration river is now being realized in order for fish to swim from salt to freshwater and contrib contributes to healthy water and offers opportunities for plants and animals. Biodiversity also uh, asks for drastic solutions, design solutions, designers, landscape architects, marine biologists, to really uh, start thinking about how we can rewild our waters again. What is needed for that? And in this episode, we dive into our oceans with three experts. And every meetup, I also have a co-host, an, an expert in today's topic. And today we have a product designer, Anouk van der Poel. And in 2018, she initiated the Ambassador of Water within the World Design Ambassadors Program of Dutch Design Foundation with partners Waterboard de Dommel, the province of North Brabant and the city of Eindhoven and Brabant Water, a representative of water itself. She challenges designers and stakeholders to create alternatives, optimistic perspectives on water issues and map out the way to get there. Her first water design, a vitalizing water carafe, changed her perspective on water. Water is a living element we need to care for. The Embassy of Water is a platform where we make water visible again, Anouk always explains, to ensure that we put water first and create a water-positive society. So welcome, Anouk, tonight uh, as my co-host. I'm very curious what you do at the uh, Embassy of Water and how you support and strengthen um, yeah, and shape our society with water. So, yeah, tell us more. 
Well, thank you, uh, Emma. Thank you for the um, introduction. Uh, hi, everyone. It's, uh, it's really nice to, uh, to be here and talk about this uh, topic. Yeah, I set up the Embassy of Water in uh, 2018 because I really wanted to uh, ensure that um, in the uh, well, the water chain and the, the companies that are in this water chain, that they start working with designers and design thinking. Yeah, the, the Embassy of Water is for me really an embassy for water. So we put water first in the projects that we do. And last year I started by introducing someone who is for us the voice of water. So we have a water expert each year and he makes uh, sure that we yeah, do what's, what's right for the water instead of looking uh, at water as a product, uh, something that we need or something that we can control. This year with the designers that we worked with, we talked about how can we change this perspective also by uh, other people or by consumers or by uh, builders or product designers to really yeah look at look at water first and and go from there um, we made an agreement with these partners this year to um, keep working together for the for the coming three years and we are going to focus on the yeah house building because we see that the way a house is built at this moment it doesn't really contribute to the water system. In fact, it does quite the opposite. We're going to see how we can change the water system in a house, in the way we use water and how much water we use, but also which water we use, uh, because now we still flush our toilets with yeah, beautiful, clean, pure drinking water. So that's the first obvious thing we need to change. But we like to look further than that and look at ways of can we also make make this regenerative? Like, can you make a home regenerative? Can a home be something where where we yes, where where the environment or our living environment benefits from the house that we live in? And then it's also important that we start looking at ourselves as part of the ecosystem because now we always put ourselves above it. Or uh, so we need to be more in in the ecosystem again, being really feel that we are part of it because I think we kind of lost that uh, somewhere along the line. So yeah, that's that's basically my story. And I, I hope we can uh, also learn from the bio designers, uh, the pioneers from the from Blue City and other people. And, and of course, um, the people who are here with us uh, today, because we are really at the starting point of this, learning a lot. Yeah, so I hope um, we have in the next three years a lot of new ideas, new products, new new way of thinking about uh, our homes and uh, living environments. And uh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. How important are designers or artists in the relationship with water? Sorry, how important are designers? And artists, yeah, in our relationship with water, because I think they can really narrate a story also around it to... Yeah you know, address these topics and how to design for water or for biodiversity in this case? Yeah, I think it's very important. Uh, last year, uh, for instance, we talked about um, uh, how we can give consumers a bigger role in the water system because now it's basically done by the water board and the drinking water company and they have all the responsibilities. How can we give people more control or more responsibility and one of the designers made um, he created these water animals 
like every uh, issue in water problem uh, had a different water animal that you can take care of. So if you, for instance, take care of the water uh, hippopotamus uh, or the water whale, then if you knew how to take care of this water animal, then you also know how to take care of the water. So it gives people this responsibility, which was really a nice narrative, a really nice way to look at this. And this year we had two designers who created a wishing well, but then the people who were visiting the Dutch Design Week, they didn't, they were not asked to wish for water or they, for themselves, but to, to wish for the water. So one of the questions was, uh, what would water wish from people? And then uh, people would write the answer on a little uh, coin and then uh, people could throw that into the water. But people really had to think about this because it wasn't, it's, it's not something you normally do think about what water could need from us. So that's really interesting to uh, to see people think about this. Yeah, so it's not really human-centered, but more uh, the more than human aspect we're talking about a lot these days is uh, in this case uh, being discussed. Yeah, thanks. Well, another, uh, well, our first speaker, I think, also has a lot of wishes uh, for the water. Uh, our first guest is Paul Peters. Uh, Paul is an environmental engineer at the Hydronamic Engineering Department of Royal Boscalis Westminster. And as a marine biologist specialized in corals and tropical systems, he obtained his MSc in Marine Sciences at the Utrecht University in 2016. He joined Boscalis in 2018. His ambition is really to enable and drive marine environmental protection and restoration initiatives. He has a keen interest in the development and application on artificial reefs for habitat restoration and coastal protection. And he's also actively involved in Boscala's Artificial Reefs program as a program lead. And I'm sure that Paul will tell us more about this. Um, so, yeah, welcome. Thank you, Emma. And thank you, Blue City Lab, for having me. Look forward to giving this presentation. Yes, so today let's have a bit of a chat about art, applying artificial reefs. Uh, it's not as straightforward as most people think. And it's also, well, it's one of the techniques that is used for coral reef restoration. But how do you apply it? And what's the context that's, that's really important around that? So let's have a look. Uh, first, just a general introduction on myself. So this is me, Paul Peters. Uh, as, uh, as Emma said, a marine biologist specialized in corals and tropical ecosystems. I did a lot of research during my bachelor. Uh, also in the geological history of coral reefs and their development of symbiosis. So um, the symbiotic relationship with the zooxanthellae, the algae, they feel, feed their tissues with sunlight. And also throughout my master's, I did a lot of studies towards uh, climate change and corals. So I know a bit about the geological past and maybe something a bit also about the geological future. Right now, working for three years already at Boscalis. Uh, since I started at Boscalis, really a keen interest in artificial reefs and also set up the artificial reefs program. Um, coincidentally, reef systems who will also be talking today is part of that program as well. Uh, so I'm excited to see that presentation. So let's head into the content here. Coral reefs are amongst the most biodiverse ecosystems on the planet. They're visible even from space. And some people think they're plants, but they're actually animals. They're very complex holobions, as we call them. So... There are a combination of an animal with living tissue, which has algae in them to um, catch sunlight and produce energy for the coral host. And also we have um, actually cyanobacteria 
who are in the tissue as well, capturing nitrogen. So it's a very complex system of nutrients happening in the coral itself. That also means any complex system is delicate, right? So coral reefs, as Emma also said in the introduction, they provide a lot of ecosystem services, for example, tourism, or they even present um, coastal defense on a large scale. And even medicinal uses, right? We develop medicines from compounds and proteins that we extract from coral reefs and their associated ecosystem. And they support a lot of biomass in the ocean's world, um, world's oceans, and therefore also they're a very important source of protein indirectly because of the fish that they produce for a large part of the world. But corals are under stress and they're facing a lot of issues. Um, I've made this slide to. Yeah, to summarize those, uh, let's have a look at, normally they say choose your battles, right? Well, I don't think corals really have a choice. Uh, let's name the, the battles that corals are facing. Habitat destruction and coastal development. Seawater temperature and acidity increases. Invasive species and diseases. Overfishing and algal phase shifts. So actually the reef becoming from a coral-dominated system towards an algal-dominated system. Pollution and water quality deterioration often linked also to coastal development. And also increasing frequency magnitude of storm events and increasing frequency intensity of El Nino and La Nina events, which are sincerely complex climatic events, which I want to explain here. But what we are seeing is that these events are increasing in magnitude um, and they have a severe impact on corals. So all these things that I've mentioned here are characterized by positive feedbacks within each stressor. So each of these elements has a positive feedback loop in itself. And also there's positive feedbacks between these stressors. So what is a positive feedback? It's not a positive impact. It's actually a self-strengthening system. So all these elements and uh, battles that corals are facing actually strengthen each other. And from a certain point in time, it becomes really hard for the ecosystem to recover to its original state. Ultimately, all these things result in coral weakening, breakage, bleaching, in which corals lose their algae and therefore also lose their color. They die off. And therefore, we also have decreased reproductive rates on the reefs. And we also have decreased recruitment success. So less little corals growing up on the reefs and becoming adults that, again, reproduce. Now, what happens if we have less corals? One of the most visual elements of that is the decrease in the ecosystem services called coastal protection. So on my slide here, I have an example of a cross-section with a reef. You can imagine you have deep open water, then a reef rises up, as you see in beautiful pictures all along the world. And this reef that comes up um, breaks the water and its energy. Therefore, the waves that reach the coast will have a lot less energy, and therefore also protect the coastline from erosion and also storm surge and those kinds of dynamics. And we often depend on these reefs, especially in, in Asia and other tropical countries with tropical coastlines, for example, the Caribbean, they, they really depend on these uh, reefs to protect the coastlines, right? Because reefs on average uh, take away 97% of the total wave energy and they also reduce the wave height by 84%. Now, with the decrease in coral growth and all those other factors that I talked about, actually decreasing also the total mass of corals and therefore also the structure, you have more wave energy hitting the coast. So especially in the Caribbean, this is visible. 
uh, on my screen here, I have some examples from the Caribbean. So if you have reefs that are declining and even also a slight level of increase in, in sea level, um, you have massive coastal erosion. And the problem here is that that directly also has economical impacts. There's damage to properties. There's also um, a damage to livelihoods from tourism. Beaches are eroded away. Recreational facilities are, um, are lost to the sea. And storm damage becomes so severe that the economy um, might be crippled for a long time. We've also seen that, for example, in Haiti. Um, so this is a really visible effect of coral reef deterioration along, for example, the Caribbean coast. So, okay, um, artificial reefs, why, why would that then be applicable to this scope, right? Why would we talk about that? Well, let's first zoom in a bit about artificial reefs themselves. Um, I've distinguished some key qualities and also some key benefits. So firstly, on the key qualities, the key defining quality of an artificial reef is that they provide instant habitat creation. And it is really about that instant. You place something in the sea, it directly impacts in a positive way if you've designed it well, the ecology, and also you have, if you design the reef for it, you actually have a, a hydrodynamic impact in a positive way, decreasing wave energy, just like the normal reef would do. Well-designed artificial reefs can have scalable applications for measurable positive impacts, and they should be designed for site-specific ecological and metocean conditions. And we'll talk about that in the next slide. Um, but artificial reefs really have to be site-specific. You cannot have one golden or silver bullet for anything in the world. So key benefits, they support fisheries, coastal protection because of that instant placement, and also biodiversity, which is increasingly lost along our tropical coastlines. They also increase ecological connectivity, and they also help in the restoration of degraded marine environments, which face permanent change. Now let's hop back a bit to that geological fact I talked about in the beginning. I've done quite some study on that uh, in the past. Um, on a geolog geological timescale, the rate of carbon growth has been quite high. But now these last decades, we've seen it decrease a lot. Therefore, that means that corals are not able to cope with sea level rise anymore. And they're not able to cope with the increasing frequency and magnitude of storm events and all the other stresses that we talked about. So that means that we're losing the topography of our reefs. And therefore, also, artificial reefs are only one of the few elements that we can actually apply to bring back some of the topography to also have wave reduction. We cannot count only, in some cases, we cannot only count on coral reefs anymore to protect our coastlines. Lastly, but not least, artificial reef placements also create opportunities for research and community involvement because the community should benefit from whatever is placed in the ocean and also should get learning opportunities from that. So on the right-hand side of the slide, we have some examples. Uh, I won't go too much into that here, but um, just as an inspiration. So what I have on my slide now is two carbonate systems, uh, two very big cliffs. One is in Zakynthos, Greece, and the other one is T-Rex Head in Bali. So you would say, okay, they're both carbonate rocks. The coastline looks approximately the same. I can see a sea. It looks beautiful. Uh, but we have to realize that these systems are completely different. Um, the context is different. The social economic status is different. The species that inhabit these systems will be different, right? The one's Mediterranean, the other one's tropical. So what I'm getting at with this metaphor is that each system requires a different artificial reef and also an artificial reef approach to be effective. And we have to distinguish two elements there. So is an artificial reef fit for purpose? And then the second question is, is the purpose actually fit for artificial reefs? 
Now, an example of that, just to make that very concrete, is, for example, the North Sea. We often try to apply artificial reefs in the North Sea, but the North Sea is a very dynamical environment. There are large sand waves with high migration rates coming across the seabed in some locations every year, meaning that if you place a reef of several meters high and there's an eight to nine meter high sand wave that comes along, you will lose your reefs and all the life on it. So that begs again the question, you might have designed a fit-for-purpose artificial reef in that location, but then maybe the purpose was not fit for an artificial reef in the first place. So artificial reefs have been along for a long time. Um, and the concept of modularity is something that I've increasingly put effort on in the past few years. It's also something that Reef Systems works on, so I look forward to the presentation. But the concept of modularity is that you have small replicable units, which are easy to make and transport. But if you collectively put that, those together, you actually get very complex structures. And that's actually what we also see in nature, right? I have here um, some examples of a dandelion, a cactus, a beehive. These are all modular systems in nature that we see that have very simple structures from the, themselves, right? The repeating unit is very simple in shape. But actually, the, um, the, the overall shape is very complex, and that also supports biodiversity. So we as Poscalis have also looked at, okay, well, uh, what are the newest technologies that we can actually um, use? And one of those is mineral increasing technology um, that is uh, actually using a kind of an electrolysis setup underneath the water with metal artificial reefs. Um, exposing them to a low voltage current actually increases their growth rates of coral on those artificial reefs. The key thing here is that this is an active system, so it's not passive. That means with active systems, such as the mineral creation technology setup, that means that corals will have enhanced growth rates, and therefore we might be able to get back some of that ecosystem services and adaptability of corals that we've lost uh, the past few decades just to natural stresses happening. So you might ask yourself, okay, well, does mineral creation technology really work? It's a voltage in the water, and how does it attract carbonate? I'll leave the chemical analysis and also the chemical reaction in the water. I'll leave it by uh, for the questions later. But I just want to give you a visual impression of what MAT actually does. Um, here on the slide, I have um, three images, uh, a coral on a metal structure with mineral creation technology by CoralLife.org, which is one of the leading NGOs in the world on mineral creation technology. A coral one month old, five months old, and 15 months old. So three pictures. And we see the growth rate is staggering. These are rates that we do not obtain in nature. Um, so this process is working. Well, you might say, Paul, this is just one coral, right? Let's have, a, let's have some more just to compare. So I have the next slide here uh, on, the, on the subject of does mineral creation technology, MAT, really work? Uh, I have two comparison photographs of two metal structures. On the left side, 15 months old without MAT being a plank. Applied and on the right hand side, we have 15 months old with MAT. And what the viewers are seeing is that the corals with MAT are growing a lot faster and expanding a lot more. That means that these corals, within a limited time frame, will be able to have more biomass, higher survivability rates, of not only facing natural threats, for example, fish, right, which sometimes bite off corals, but also disease and also storm events. And that's a very interesting part, because if the corals are able to grow faster, they'll also be able to recover faster from storm events. And unfortunately, we cannot 
control storm events, but we can control the recovery rate of coral. So that's uh, an inspiring part of what we're doing. Um, I want to finish off that um, artificial reefs are not a, a one-step uh, one solution for corals along the world. Um, looking at geological past, coral reefs have faced a lot more issues than what we see now. On the shortest timescale uh, as this, it hasn't happened, right? So the timescale of change now is unprecedented in geological history. But corals will be around a lot longer than humans. They're extremely adaptable. They're extremely diverse. We'll just have to get used to the fact that we won't see them in the diversity and abundance and also the geographical distribution as we see them today. I don't think that's obtainable given where we're going at, ecologically speaking. So we're seeing a lot of shifts on the reefs. That does not mean that we should give up. Um, artificial reefs can provide a key element in coral reef restoration and also protect the coastlines and therefore also the livelihoods of the people living on those coastlines. And uh, so that's what we do with the artificial reefs program as well, uh, trying to upscale modular artificial reef technologies uh, to try to make a large scale positive impact. Feel free to get in touch with myself if you want to learn more. Obviously, I'm very interested to hear about the questions after the session. Um, and I'd like to give the floor back to Emma. It's really mind-blowing. And I also learned uh, that we also use coral reefs for eventually creating medicines. That's something I never knew. And actually, what I would like to ask you is, I know Boscal is as one of the biggest uh, dredging companies in the world, uh, but also you're very... Well, Boscal is very active in the protection of coast and riverbanks. So I think that's for the people who never or really heard about Boscalis. It's really, for me, positive to see how how yeah a company like Boscalis can really contribute to uh, with yeah you know your beautiful program to the restoration of uh, biodiversity. Anouk, do you also have a question for Paul? Thank you all. That's in, indeed very interesting uh, to see what you can uh, achieve here. And I was uh, wondering, if I look at our uh, system here in the Netherlands, you also talked about it a little bit. Yeah, we don't have uh, coral here, but we do need smart solutions to enhance our ecosystem. Do you maybe have any ideas what we can do here in our coastline? I believe that we have some little corals on some of the wrecks and hard substrate that do have in the North Sea. It's not a lot anymore. It's marginal. That's why I also focus in this uh, uh, presentation on the tropical side. But uh, artificial reefs, the same principles and their key values and benefits and qualities actually still apply to any other ecosystem, especially one, for example, with the North Sea in which fish habitat is so important with uh, such a uh, small amount of hard substrate that's available. Um, Anything that you place in the sea gets colonized, therefore also starts its own little biome and, and ecosystem. And therefore, artificial reefs can really bring back some of the hard substrate that was lost also during the trawling fishing during the past few decades. Yeah. Um, the North Sea used to be littered, not only with oyster reefs, but also with um, hard substrate, uh, glacial boulders and rocks that were okay. deposited there in the Ice Age that were actually also scooped up the nets, obviously, because that's yeah. not something that they wanted. Um, it was just a byproduct. So uh, artificial reefs have their place in any ecosystem, uh, yeah. but site-specific and appropriately designed. Yeah, we also have another question from one of our guests. Uh, do you think the mirror creation technology could also have negative impacts? For example, if not using stainless steel, 
then there is no worry about hazardous ions leaching into the nearby water? It's a very important question. The ironic thing about the mineralization technology is that you have to use you have to use steel that rusts. That means that there's an easy electrical potential that can come from the steel, and also therefore it easily accepts the electrons that are sent out by the anode, and therefore the electrolysis process happens. So if you use a stainless steel, the process actually doesn't happen. You also don't get any rust. You use non-stainless steel, you do the electrolysis reaction for maybe a year or two, and you get such a thick layer of carbonate that the steel is completely surrounded by carbonate and therefore no longer available to the water column. And therefore, you will not have any residual risk of rust or uh, bad materials coming from that. So that's a key element of it. But actually, the, the rusting principle is needed to make it work. And electrolysis for the people who don't know what it is? Electrolysis is a chemical reaction that you, uh, that you create by um, putting a voltage on something. So it's also the way that we produce hydrogen from our splitting water by uh, also running a current through water, you can create um, hydrogen. And in this case, what actually happens is uh, electrons are sent out by the anode and they are captured by the metal, which is attractant of the uh, electrons. And once they take up the electrons, actually they kind of combine calcium ions with uh, carbonate ions or bicarbonate ions. And then a carbonate reaction happens, just like in your kettle, basically. You get carbonate formation um, and that secretes onto the structures. And that carbonate layer grows. It has the same structure. If you do it well, it has the same structure as aragonite, which is the carbonate um, form that we see in corals. And corals, uh, the reason why we think that corals actually grow fast on this, we're seeing higher growth rates, but the reasoning why is very likely that the corals have to spend less energy to make carbon because the metal of the frame is already doing that. That means they have more energy left for growth rates. And they also have more metabolic energy left to fight off disease and other stressors. So we often see that these corals are more resilient to higher water temperatures and disease outbreaks in local uh, reefs. Wow, <laughs> this is a very, uh, very valuable other uh, information. So it is also super important to think what kind of materials we use to, you know, design artificial reefs. I think it extremely, could be, yeah. yeah, extremely. So I think our next speaker also knows a lot about this. Uh, over to you, Anouk. We're going to go to our next speaker, which is uh, Max Dijkstra. And Max is also a product designer with a main focus on nature-inclusive products. And together with uh, his business partner, Jesse de Bonds, they founded Reef Systems in 2019. And Reef Systems provides innovative solutions to stimulate biodiversity. Their main solution is the modular sea life system that I'm sure you will talk about here. Uh, it's a modular building system to create artificial reefs. Yeah, I think I would like to hear from you. I can read up uh, what it says here about you, but I think it's more interesting to hear you uh, tell everything about it. Yeah, that's fine, Anouk. Uh, first of all, Paul, thank you so much um, for your time, your presentation, and giving us some insights, uh, very good insights, actually, in the current problems and possible solutions uh, surrounding coral reefs. Uh, habitat destruction and overall loss of biodiversity is an ongoing global problem. Leading causes to this problem are industrial fishing, global uh, warming and rising sea levels. To successfully combat these problems, we have to design the right conditions for Mother Nature to help herself. My name is Max Dijkstra, I'm one of the founders of Reef Systems. Um, we provide innovative solutions to stimulate biodiversity. Uh, I graduated the Artes University for the Arts as a product designer in 2018 um, with the modular system, uh, sea life system. Uh, at this point, it was still called the Fish Hotel. 
which was quite a funny name. Um, but we changed that name to Moses because it fits the purpose of the design and the functionality a lot better. Moses is a hexagonal concrete building system to create artificial reefs on which oysters, mussels, corals and seaweeds can hatch, whilst offering shelter and a safe space to reproduce uh, for fish, shellfish and other forms of marine life. Um, Moses can either be built up underwater by divers, uh, or as you can see on the right here, uh, it can be built up on large uh, concrete plates and sunken down uh, with a crane ship or via crane with lifting bags. Um, it can also be used as an, uh, so this is an artificial reef, as you can see, uh, but it also has a double function. So it can be either an uh, anchoring for aquaculture. Uh, aquaculture is um, uh, like uh, sea farming, so seaweeds or mussels, oysters. Um, or it can be used as small objects uh, uh, to battle coastal erosion. So it has the same function as an um, artificial reef, as Paul has explained in this presentation. Uh, so we do not only create an instant habitat, but we also create an instant um, uh, wave breaker. Uh, sadly, for the people in the podcast, uh, you cannot see this right now. Um, but this is uh, we're looking now here at the, our South Holland pilot. This is one year after installation. I'm very glad, by the way, that in the previous talk we came up to that we don't have any corals in North Sea, but we do have a lot of beautiful stuff here in the North Sea. Um, so basically a lot of oysters, mussels, seaweeds, algae, and a lot of fish and crabs. Um, the special material composition uh, that we use and the surface complexity enables the colonization of the reefs to start immediately after placement. Um, with the help of Moses, we can stimulate the health of damaged ecosystems around the world and help them uh, return to the way that they're supposed to look. Um, as you can see here, uh, well, you cannot see the surface complexity anymore, but to dive a little bit deeper into what our special material composition does. Um, so we lower the pH of uh, level of concrete is quite high and that of seawater is quite basic, as you, well, as you call that. Uh, so it's around eight. So we do a couple of tricks with our material to lower that to get it on a neutral level. Uh, and because of that, all sorts of larvae and algae uh, will uh, immediately find the material and hatch on it. So it's like a kickstart for the kickstarting species. Um, so together with my business partner, uh, we founded Reef Systems in 2019. And to make a serious impact with a project or with a company like this, you have to take into, into consideration um, who the key players in the field are and how you can collaborate with them. Because making a serious positive impact is not something one can do alone. Um, for this reason, we have a continuous uh, collaboration with Boscalis. This is also where my friend Paul is from. Um, and the University of Wageningen. Uh, since the start of Reef Systems, we've placed over 500 of our Moses modules, uh, divided in four projects on 12 locations. Uh, we also do several, make several other products, but since this is a talk solely about coral restoration, I would like to leave that for another moment. So, together with Paul, we've realized two projects around coral restoration. Um, we're looking now at our Kenya project. Um, this is located in Shimoni, Kenya. And to give you an idea, it's a very small fishing village. Oh, the lights are going off here in the room. Well... It's a very small fishing village um, without a hardened road. And this is really where you see that the modularity of the Moses system is really unique. 
um, because you can build up uh, an artificial reef uh, on a small on a location with limited resources because each individual module can be handled by one person. Um, so for the people in the podcast, sadly you cannot see it, but we're seeing an image of uh, three young ladies all carrying one module. Then on the right we have a boat filled with the module. It's a small fishing boat. And then you see the build-up installation um, underwater. And we have one really nice picture with three moray eels uh, squeezed into one Moses module. Um, what we did here as well... Wait, I'm going for this wrong. Um, yes. Um, okay, as Paul said, you need to have uh, specific reasons why you're placing an artificial reef. Why we are doing this in Shimoni, Kenya is the following drive. Uh, during the Civil War, they used uh, dynamite fishing here a lot. And this is probably the most unsustainable way of fishing uh, that there is. How it works is that you throw in a piece of active dynamite besides the boat and the blast will kill all the fish nearby uh, and leaving them up to float for you to easy pick them up. But what it also does is uh, it destroyed all the corals in this uh, small area around Shimoni, leaving only uh, rubble or dead co uh, coral rubble uh, over large patches of ocean floor. And since the larvae of coral need a hard substrate to land on and to grow, this is a really good place <coughs> uh, to apply artificial reefs. Um, uh, we have worked together here with Boscalis, as I said, and um, with the local, uh, local organization Revolution. And what they've done there, uh, besides also creating uh, work for the local people there, they've also placed what you call colonizing corals, or corals of opportunity, uh, onto the Moses system. Um, what this means is that small pieces of coral that have broken off, they can be saved. If it would keep on rolling over the ocean floor, it would eventually die. But if you take it up and you fix it to a structure, uh, it will start making photosynthesis again and it will start growing. And amazingly, these corals of opportunity can somehow communicate with coral larvae. Paul, maybe you know how they do it. I don't know, because it's totally mind-blowing to me. Um, the corals of opportunity can community, communicate to coral larvae and say to them, hey, this is a really nice substrate. You should come over here and land on this structure and grow. And in this way, the corals of opportunity um, actually attract other corals. And this way, you kickstart really a, di a diverse uh, coral reef ecosystem. Um, the second project we did together uh, is located in Portobello, Panama. Uh, the drive for this project is a bit different. We're looking at a sandy bottom system here. It is uh, an area in which coral reefs are, but this specific patch we've chosen because there are no corals close by. And we're testing, uh, I think, four different uh, forms of artificial reef structures. So it's really um, a research project in, the, in a sense. So we're testing two MIT structures and um, two concrete uh, systems, of which the Moses system is one. And um, out of the time we've seen so far and the research so far, the Moses system is uh, popping out as the system that is attracting a large diversity of fish and especially a lot of juvenile fish, because there's a lot of 3D complexity going on in a very uh, small area. I think the lights are all closing. Oh, okay. Um, Yes. So to get back to the topic of the evening, 
Um, on how to biodesign coral restoration, I would like to list the key elements uh, one should take into consideration when working on coral restoration. Uh, first of all, the location and the problem that you're trying to solve. Placing artificial reefs on a healthy coral reef uh, wouldn't make any sense. So you want to create structures in places where the natural hard substrate is lacking or destroyed by human activities. The choice of materials, very important, and the pH neutrality. Um, I've already explained this part. And the third element is more from a business perspective. Um, the partners you work with and the research that needs to be done uh, to prove you're actually doing something good. There's a lot of artificial reefs uh, projects that haven't worked out so well. And I think this has a lot to do with people not working together with universities or with the right researchers to actually do something good. So I was planning to end my talk here, but Emma, I noticed in your um, up talk, you talked about the dike uh, reinforcement. Of the, and we just finished a big project, so I scooped it in my presentation real fast. We've just finished a project um, which is part of a dike reinforcement here in the Netherlands uh, in collaboration with Heimans, Arcades and het Waterschap Noorderzeilvest. This is on the outside of a dike in uh, Friesland. And here we've placed um, uh, 250 Moses modules. This is another product that we do. It's a tidal pool, so it's an integrated uh, object for in um, dike reinforcement. And it also has an intertidal pool on top. And what is really good about this project, and this is also where I see the future uh, going for coral restoration or habitat restoration in general, it's a nature-inclusive approach of construction. So we see that the ecological side of construction projects is becoming more and more important. And by adding nature-inclusive approach to your projects, it's uh, more likely for the contractors to win their tenders. And we can also do something good instead of do so, doing something bad when we're making large constructions uh, such as dikes or offshore wind farms. Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to thank you for your time and attention. Um, if you'd like to see some more of Reef Systems in the future, you can follow us on the socials. That was um, my presentation. I hope it was something good. Thank you so much, Max. Anouk, would you like to... Uh... Thank you very much. That's also very interesting. And uh, I have a question here in the chat. It's from Inga van den Bosse. She says, how do you think the design shape on a macro scale influences coral biodiversity? So does the shape, does the shape matter? Uh, in fact, it does. Um, because we've seen from a previous projects, we have a small pilot here. Uh, we're in Amsterdam Harbor. And we see that a lot of um, colonizing um, uh, hard-bodied uh, creatures, such as corals or um, tube-forming pipes, they like to land uh, beneath something. So they want to have like a little, little sheltered roof on top of their head. I'm not yeah. a marine biologist, so Paul, please fill me up if I'm saying the wrong terms here. Um, but yes, I do think um, the shape matters, but what is most important is the surface complexity. So that's if you have a, a concrete shape, which is completely smooth, then nothing will really land on it. Right. But if that same concrete surface has hundreds of little small holes, different sizes, that's mm -hmm. what they're looking for. And I've been to the uh, Wageningen lab to look at um, coral larvae, and they literally have like a tank where they have a small little thing, and you can actually see him swim. And they right. told us there, they had a material sample in there, 
And if the coral larvae doesn't like the pH of the material or the material uh, surface complexity or the material in general, it will just swim around until it dies. So it won't hatch if it doesn't like it. Right. So I do think shape is important. Okay, but is it, is it um, the material, is it concrete or is it a, a different type of material? Yeah, we are using uh, concrete with glass fiber reinforcement. Um, the glass fiber is to make it super strong and concrete, it does really have a bad name. We are using a blast furnace cement, which is a 50% less CO2 emitting. Right. Uh, but the beautiful thing about concrete is when you make it the right way, it will last forever. So a Moses block or installation installed properly, it could last 500 years plus. And I think that's something we should take into consideration yeah. when restoring ecosystems. And I've heard you both talk about these coral larvae. I've never imagined it like that. I've always thought of coral as more of a, a plant structure than animal structure. And I think that also might be very interesting to to share that story more so that everyone knows that it's a tiny creature that's living there, that's making the coral. I think it's interesting you say that, Anoop, because most people have more affinity, generally, uh, people have more affinity with animals than with plants, right? I don't think that that should be necessarily the case, because equal, they're no. important. <laughs> I um, agree. They also, they also give us the, the, the oxygen to live uh, and breathe. Um, but yeah, uh, corals are indeed animals, and these larvae are swimming, right? They're li little swimming creatures. Um, they're kind of like little jellyfish. And uh, the word you were looking for, I guess, uh, Max, was they need cryptic environments. So they want to have a little niche with a little something over their heads or something that they can latch themselves into to corner themselves in and therefore they have less uh, space or, or surface area actually exposed to the outside environment with, where fish can bite them off or uh, uh, crabs can eat them. Um, that's what you're seeing. And I think that one of the pitfalls for artificial reef designs, especially in the past, has been that people want to design artificial reefs that look like corals. You have to make artificial reef that's susceptible and a very successful substrate for corals. And then the corals will bring the complexity themselves. Okay, that's a good learning for everybody who wants to uh, start working on this. Because, yeah. That's the thing. You can see that people really have a human way of looking at the design. But you should look from ecological principles. You should not look from a human perspective. Right? So we should not design artificial reefs that look like corals. We should make an ideal substrate which then attracts the corals and have them grow. Yeah, I also had a question because I can also imagine that it's really site-specific, so um, that some areas in the world need another type of material, maybe depending on the pH of the water or the, the temperature of the water. Is that, or is that a design thing you can solve? So for example, because Max, you are applying your system in the Netherlands, but also in Kenya. But I, the water diversity is also different. Or is does this system apply to all areas of um, the world? Yeah, that's maybe where me and Paul uh, differ um, uh, opinion-wise. I do think that our system would be suited for most uh, aquatic ecosystems. Uh, but it's very important to look at what you're, uh, what you're trying to approach or what you're trying to reach. Um, so, for instance, I know that uh, sweetwater mussels or freshwater mussels, as you call them, they uh, need way more surface complexity than uh, saltwater mussels, for instance. So you should have uh, knowledge about what you're doing for a certain ecosystem. Um, so I think saltwater is a little bit, it's, it's more diverse, I think. Um, 
No, I think that our system is applicable for any ecosystem. That is an answer to your question, Emma. Yeah, it is. It is. Um, I also had another uh, question. Then, Anouk, of course, you can also go ahead. But I uh, so many questions, um, and it was also a question from uh, from one of our guests. Are the corals more porous if they grow on an artificial reef than they would normally grow in a, the natural environment, or is that porous as in the structure, the carbonate structure themselves? Yeah, for example. Yes. So that's something. Sometimes something that we see with mineral crystal technology grown corals that they grow so fast or have a different method of mineral accretion, it seems so that the structure might be a bit different. When the corals become large, I also said a um, question in the chat, when the corals become overly large, that could be an issue. It could also have a storm effect. At the same time, we have to appreciate that mineral accretion technology reefs so far um, are mainly actually aimed at being really a good nursery environment, producing massive amount of corals within no time um, and then being able to propagate those further. Those corals will very likely then be placed on non-MAT structures because that's really expensive having everything from MAT. So right, MAT being mineral cohesion technology. So um, I do not foresee a small increase in porosity for corals as a major issue versus the larger amount of biomass and reproductive rates that we can achieve with higher amounts of corals. Um, but these things are still being studied and it's not really well known. Actually, the, car the carbonate secretion mechanism for corals was unknown for a long time and we still don't know everything about the pathways involved so that's definitely an avenue for future research i have a question uh, for whomever likes to answer it and we have a dutch expression i can imagine that sometimes it's very hard to work on something like this when you know there's still a lot happening in the world that is um, destroying these corals how do you stay positive for me personally, I think it's knowing the fact that I am trying to do something uh, positive. Because if we would all think, okay, it's Dweilen met de open, then yeah, the whole world would go to shit really fast. And I think there's there's a growing um, there's a growing awareness. I think a lot. Uh, thanks a lot, David Edinburgh, for this. But there's a growing awareness, I think, um, among young people, among old people, um, among people of all ages. Uh, that it's gone really bad with our oceans and that we should, you know, do something about it collectively. Mm -hmm. And of course, not everybody is in the position or wants to put themselves in the position of, of doing something like it. And for me, yeah, it was, this was the path. And just knowing that I'm trying to do something is already enough to keep going, I guess. Mm -hmm. Completely agree. I think that you need to have a really high sense of perseverance on this topic because uh, I think famously coral reef scientists are actually quoted as being one of the most uh, depression-proof people around the world, <laughs> given the amount of uh, stuff that's happening. Um, yes, I fully agree with Max. Uh, you have to uh, make all the effort that you can. Also, that's why I love working at the company as Pascalis because... Uh, sometimes we do have an impact, but that also means that where I'm sitting right now, I can have the largest positive impact that I can. And, uh, and, and large-scale application of artificial use might be solutions for some cases. And also touch upon the, the topic that we discussed also in the chat about funding, right? How, how are these things funded? And um, unfortunately, it's often the, the least economically viable areas that have the largest climate impact, right? Uh, for example, some of the Caribbean nations do not have the funds to protect the coastlines and the declining coral reefs, but they get the full hurricane impact almost every year. 
I, I was in, the, in 2017, I was in the Florida Keys. Two weeks before Irma came, Hurricane Irma, which reached land almost as a category six hurricane. That's a theoretical, it's not even on the scale. Um, and so how to weaponize against these kinds of hurricanes, that's really difficult. And so luckily we're seeing the blue economy coming up, right? So World Bank stepping in, other financing parties stepping in. That needs experienced and well thought out designs and projects, financing mechanisms, and also contractors such as Poscalis, but also parties such as Reef Systems to make whatever is placed and what kind of value is placed in terms of money on that project to make that viable, right? Yeah. We want to have a positive impact. Um, that's really what we need. We don't have the time anymore to just yeah. test around a bit. Yeah, exactly. Thank you so much. I, and I also wonder uh, the people who want to put effort in it, can we also think of a, a return or that people get kind of carbon credits or um, is that too much of a stress, stretch, sorry? So that people get, you know, rewarded for the fact they uh, they put energy in it. Or I think the carbon credits credits come along with the blue blue carbon economy, for example, with mangroves and seagrass, which have extremely high amounts of carbon sequestration, as we call it, right? They capture carbon. Coral reefs don't really do that. Coral reefs are very low nutrient environments, and they really efficiently recycle nutrients. But there's not a lot of mass. Um, uh, being captured in terms of CO2. Actually, the production of carbonate produces CO2, so the more that corals grow, that also has an effect, but at the same time, they, of course, again, absorb CO2 through their photosynthesis process. So it's kind of a net balance, but it's not that easy. It's so complex, and I think that um, with the Blue Economy, with the World Bank supporting developing countries which are uh, above and beyond impacted by climate change, that's where the financing needs to come from, really, to support this kind of stuff. And I can also imagine that you can really start local initiatives with the people in certain countries to also start an economy for, for them over there. So how can you, maybe Max, I don't know, I assume you also work with, with locals to install these quarries and see how they can maybe produce the modules in their country with maybe... Yeah. concrete or waste streams that are available there in order to produce these. So, yeah, I think that's a it's another project in itself, maybe, but yeah. Uh, yeah, that is, uh, we, we agree on that last statement that it's a whole project, uh, project on itself. We tried to do that in Kenya, actually, to do the production over there, but it, it, it would cost almost the, the amount of money that we, that we had for the project. It would cost that to only import all the stuff that we cannot get in Kenya. Um, so what we do now is we work together with the locals to do the installation process and they get paid for all the work that they do. And currently, as a company, we are looking in, uh, we are designing our production process, uh, we're redesigning it, and we're redesigning it in a way that we can ship one small 10-foot container with all the machines, all the molds, and all the materials for, let's say, a thousand products to an area such as Shimoni, Kenya, and then they only have to buy cement and sand or have to get that, I don't know. Um, so I think that this is something very promising, but you have to have, you have to be um, quite sophisticated already in your process. So I know that uh, reef ball, which is another widely widely applied artificial reef, uh, they do this, where they, they, they sell the molds, and you have to buy the material composition from them. Uh, but you see that a lot of people, they, they don't adhere to the rules or they don't adhere to the, the recipe that they bought. 
and then they start using the right or the wrong materials and then they put in artificial reefs that after 10 years still don't have any growth on them. Um, so it, it's quite tricky. Um, what I think is very important, which we did in the Kenya project and what they're doing over there with the Revolution organization is to help educate people because the artificial reef, it's, um, it's a sustainable livelihood, not as the, the, the making of artificial reefs, but as a fishery. So a healthy reef will create more fish, uh, more mass, um, more, um, and if the people, the local people are taught how to uh, keep the reef healthy and not overfish it or they have certain spots they take, certain spots they don't take, there's all systems to this, um, then they can actually benefit from the, from the work that other people have done. But I, th yeah, it, I think it would be, it, it's still quite far away, I think, for us at least to start a whole economy locally somewhere on, on our products. Right. Okay. I see another question in the chat it's from Nienke, who says, I'm still very worried about the concrete use, though I totally understand the durability agreement, uh, argument, sorry. Um, she says, we don't have enough sand for this. So I think the, the worry <laughs> comes from that angle. Yeah, Paul, you were talking about uh, metal frames. So would that, I don't know, would that be better or would that, is there, does it create different uh, coral reefs with different materials or? It's a different, it's a different setup, right? Are you building like an F1 formula car or are you building a uh, endurance racer? It's a different setup. Um, <laughs> with the mineral creation technology reefs, um, they have an ecological goal but they might not be as efficient in breaking the waves and, and just, I mean, let me just put it this way. If anybody would ever ask you, can you have one superpower? Please just answer that you would like to control water because that's the most powerful force on earth. And therefore, mineral creation technology reefs will not be able to catch hurricane waves and storm surge, but mm -hmm. concrete reefs will, right? In certain dimensions and weights. And there come back the classical characteristics of concrete, which make it great. It's nice to design. You can easily produce it. It's a technology that we've known for hundreds of years. Even the Romans knew it. Um, and Max knows all about it. And that's, <laughs> that's the nice thing again about concrete. So the, yes, there's a CO2 impact. Um, yeah. But all these things need to be weighed in relative importance to each other for site selection and also for the project you're making. Because if you can make a concrete reef that works ecologically, but also protects the coastline, it saves billions in damage, the yearly cost of maintenance and repairs. That's something to think about. So, Is there something you need that would help you um, develop these systems further? If you could ask anything, what would it be? <laughs> As a company, we're always on the lookout for our next project. So if anybody is keen or knows somebody somewhere on a very nice tropical island that wants to do a coral reef restoration project, um, definitely uh, don't hesitate yep. to contact us. For the rest, I don't know, Paul, if you have any um, things you need help with? Oh, what's your dream? What's your dream, Paul? <laughs> uh, my dream would be this, that we take this very seriously and that we start looking at larger scale. Uh, protection of coastlines, protection of livelihoods, um, like I said, the coral reefs at this point in time, also with the stresses that I discussed in my presentation, they will not be able to recover from the events that are coming uh, every year, increasing severity and the frequency. So that urgency is being felt, I guess. Uh, we've had a recent uh, climatic top as well in Glasgow. And uh, I think that if the major funds come in, and these projects are set out, the next few decades are going to be completely pivotal. Let's stress this point. 
we will not get back to reefs that we've seen in the 1970s or 60s. That's what we call the shifting baseline, right? When we dove, the, the old coral scientists, they're almost dying out at this point in time, they dove on the Florida Keys Reef Tract or the Great Barrier Reef, and they saw a completely different art, uh, normal reef, sorry, <laughs> natural reef. I'm so used to talking about artificial reefs. They saw very different normal reefs there, um, natural reefs, compared to now. We'll have to get used to that picture. We'll have to strive for that balance. We cannot save everything, but we'll have to be selective for where certain amounts of money make the most positive impact. We cannot save everything. Um, but like I said, as a consoling um, statement, coral reefs will be along with us for a longer time on Earth than humans will. I would like to actually get into some of the questions I also see in the chat. There's a lot of questions about the concrete, so I do have a last thing to say about it. For me, it's always a little bit difficult. As a startup, you have to, what materials are you using? What is the CO2 emissions? You know, I've maybe used in two years' time, I've used four, five, six pellets of cement. If I go 50 meters that way from my, from my office building, there are concrete poles like i mean they're 10 meters wide 20 meters high to to hold a highway so it's always a little bit tricky as a startup like where do you focus on and what is important and i think within concrete there are some very interesting um, um innovations going on right now something we are really keen on experimenting with as well is called the geopolymer concrete i know for a fact that boscalis has already built a bridge using it um, and it has a CO2 reduction of 80% compared to uh, a traditional cement. And this is really fantastic, of course. So there are a lot of um, innovations going on in this field, but the cement industry, it's so big. So you have to imagine that they have the small entrepreneurs and then you have the really big corporations and you have really big cement corporations and they keep everything under their thumb, you know? Um, so I think it's important for startups to show the big corporates that it can be done and i think that's the beautiful thing about the collaboration that i have with paul is that we both share a vision i am a startup he works at a big corporation and together you can actually make the impact that we dream of i think agreed that's really fantastic and i hope it's also an example for uh, everybody who's listening and who is attending uh this uh, how to buy design event that it can be done and if you both Belief in uh, in something that you can really make it happen, and that we need a designer, an artist, a creative brain. And Paul is also for me very inspirational and also a creative because you see it from a different perspective. And I also think that uh, you know it's not a, a commercial for Boscalis, but it's really um, an example for other companies as well how um, how much we need uh, this entrepreneurship and and these pioneers to make it happen. So that was uh, really inspirational for me. Of course, we will continue with some questions. Uh, but Anouk, I really want to ask you, because uh, <laughs> it made a lot of impression on me, this, uh, I have the urge to read more about corals and read more about alternative uh, or artificial reefs. How do you feel about it? Uh, do you see uh, this as a new project maybe <laughs> for the Embassy of Water? Yeah, first, like I said, I keep having this image of these little tiny, sweet little larvae that are swimming around. <laughs> so I would love to see more about that. 
Yeah, another thing is the partners that I'm working with are, of course, um, mainly in, in the Brabant area. But I also saw on your website, Max, that you also make other products that are uh, maybe more of use there. Also in the canals uh, where you use these... Uh, Feed piles. Yeah, exactly. Dumb, dumb. <laughs> So the plants can grow there and, and that's, yeah, more biodiversity starts there. So I think that's very interesting also to look there. Definitely something to look into further. Yeah, I would like to thank Paul and uh, Max and also Anouk for this great contribution and for all the listeners. And I hope to uh, welcome you back at the next How to Buy Design, the last uh, episode of this year. Uh, but I'm very excited for next year and hope to see you soon. Thanks for listening. Would you like to attend one of our online meetups? Go to bluecity.nl slash howtobiodesign. If you're looking for more bio tips and tricks, join a community on biofabforum.org. How to Buy Design was realized with funding from Creative Industries Fund NL and edited by Puree Productions. Special thanks to our network partners, Rotterdam University of Applied Science, Willem de Kooning Academy, and to our international network partners, Glimps.bio from Belgium, and the US-based Biodesign Challenge team. Hope to meet you in our next episode. <laughs>